Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Today's show is an Alpha Chat short. I am going to pass the mic to my colleague, John Authors. He's the senior investment commentator here at the Financial Times. And John is going to be interviewing Charlie Ellis, a longtime advocate of index investing who is perhaps best known for his books, Winning the Losers Game and The Partnership. Amy and I will be back for our regularly scheduled Alpha Chat this Friday. Again, here is John Authors and Charlie Ellis. Enjoy. Charlie, start by taking me through. You started out your career many years ago as an active investment manager. Can you summarize the experiences that's brought you to being such a strong advocate of indexing? There are many of them, and they go by stages and stages and stages. But at the very beginning, and I have to tell you, John, it was wonderful. Uh, you'd get factual information coming from a small number of securities firms that were following major companies, doing long, long reports, 30, 50, 70, even 100 pages long detailed analysis of the finances, all kinds of reporting on what was going on at the companies. And you could candidly buy low and sell high. And we were able to beat the market by two or 300 basis points almost every quarter. You're making it sound very easy. And you're also describing things which these days we get instantaneously without having to pay for it from the internet. So basically, the opportunity to make those profits is gone now, would you argue? Well, there have been an enormous number of changes, and all of them have made it harder and harder and harder to be different and better than the competition. But back in the old days, we used to use slide rules. Now no one would dream of using a slide rule. Computers were very rarely used, and only in large banks. Now everybody has computers. I carry in my pocket a cell phone Mm. that's got more power than a 360 computer, which at the time we thought was a simply magnificent machine. But all kinds of changes, and I can run through them if you like. Take Take us through a few more. Why was it possible 50 years ago to beat the market, and why is it now impossible to do it other than by luck? Well, the secret to great success in business is to choose competition that's not very good and then have at it. The same thing works in sports. The same thing works in exams. same thing works in lots of different activities. But in investment management, if the competition is not proficiently skilled, and you are, you're at a very strong competitive advantage. And truth is, when I got started, more than 90% of all the trading that was done on the New York Stock Exchange was done by individuals. On average, they did one trade every year or two, and 50% of their trading was done at AT AT&T. They didn't ever do anything because of what was going inside the market. It was what was going on outside the market. Just to be clear about what you've just told us, half of all the trades that individuals were making on the New York Stock Exchange 50 years ago were just in the one stock AT and T. Yes, and they were odd lot trades because they didn't have enough money to buy 100 shares at a time. Right. They'd gotten a bonus, so they would buy some stocks and put it away for safekeeping. They were sending their kids off to college, so they'd sell some stocks to pay the tuition. 
They were doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs with much more important things on their minds. This was a recreational sideline, wisely advised, you may argue, by their retail broker, but there wasn't very much advice, and the retail broker didn't have very much in the way of research. He typically had what were called the S&P tear sheets, two sides of a four-by-eight piece of paper that told you the past in reasonably summary form, but nothing about what was going to happen in the future because nobody knew. But if you were one of the small number of people who were, quote-unquote, professional investors, and we all were terribly proud of being professional investors, you would have finished reading a 50-, 60-, 70-page study that told you quite a great deal about what was going on in the past, currently, and what looked like the most likely things to happen in the future. Unfair competitive advantage, and we took advantage of it. Right, and these days, plainly, the number of people trading on the market in any given day, the number of mugs, to use the British expression, who you can happily take on and expect to beat them, has dwindled to almost nothing. You're just competing against other great players. Yeah, that's really true, but it's a little bit different in that Mm. the volume of activity by individuals probably hasn't dropped off very much, but it's gotten to be a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Instead of being 90% individuals, now the market is maybe 1% individuals. 1%. And that means that 99% is professionals. So that means really that if we look at past performance data for for funds going back a very long way, we could may as well more or less ignore it. It's from a completely different era when the opportunities were different. Well, the world does change. And it's a little bit like all of us six months ago were thinking how wonderfully warm the weather is and how comfortable it is to go around in a light shirt. And uh, the last couple of months, we've been wearing a sweater. Next couple of months, we're going to be wearing overcoats, talking about how bitter cold it is. Those changes do happen, and they've happened in the investment management market with one major difference. The changes in the investment management business are never going to be reversed. Now, that leads us to an interesting question. I mean, I'm I'm sure you're right that you can't do away with the amount of information and the speed and the power of the technology that we now have. But what are the risks of some kind of a counter-revolution once we get to a point where, say, many active investors follow the, the implicit advice you're giving them and give up and 90, 95% of the market is run on an indexed basis, doesn't that mean that suddenly there's bound to be an extra new opportunity for active investors to spot all those anomalies that nobody else is looking for anymore? Of course, none of us know what the answer is to that hypothetical question, but I'll give you a best try, if you'd be willing later, to come back to what are the forces of change that have driven us to the place we are today. But if you look at, for an example, I'm startled when I see young women and men smoking cigarettes. We all know what the science says. We all know what the data says. We all know that cancer is a miserable way to die, and you die way earlier than you need to. And so it's a huge argument for not smoking under any circumstances. But there's some that are still doing it. Human nature is a constant. Well, we know that gambling is designed to entertain Mm. people enough so they won't mind losing 10 or 20% of their money every wheel turns. But we go to Las Vegas and there are lots of people there. If you go to Macau, there are lots of people there. If you go to Singapore, there are lots of people there. Wherever gambling is possible, there are large numbers of people gambling and they are not actually gambling. They are gradually losing money. (laughs) Right. So ultimately, the argument is simply people are being very well paid to be active investors and they're going to carry on trying to be active investors while there are still people prepared to uh, give them their money. I think so. There's a couple of things we have to keep in mind. When you say really well paid, it's worthwhile remembering investment management is today the highest paid line of work in the world. 
from business which you're saying consistently loses to people who just track the index? Yeah, but I want to go back on a couple of other things. Largest, best-paid line of work in the world. So what are you going to do to get people to stop being in the investment management business? Cut their pay in half? They wouldn't leave. They'd still want to play because it's fascinating. It's really interesting. It's very enjoyable. And you don't have to stop at 35 as commercial paper traders usually do. You don't have to stop at 45 as investment bankers usually do. You don't have to stop at 65 as corporate executives usually do. You can be an investment manager comfortably in your 80s. I've known a couple of people over 100 who are still actively involved in investment management. And on the side, you can do something for your personal account that might add to your total compensation. And that can be pretty nice. The rewards are really quite substantial. It's going to be very hard to talk people out of continuing to play who are active. The reason individuals will retain their services is, breathes there a man with soul so dead who never to himself has said, I can do better. When I was a child, my mother used to read to me, and I loved it. The little engine that could. I thought I could. I thought I could. I thought I could. Yep. We all learned as kids in school, if you study harder, you'll get better grades. And we learn in our jobs, if we do more work for the employer, we'll get more promotions. So trying harder works in many, many places. It doesn't work in straight jackets, and it doesn't work in Chinese finger puzzles, but many places it does. So we kind of think I can do better. You know, the old 80-20 rule, yeah. 80% of us all believe we're above average as good humor above average at dancing, above average at kissing, above average at understanding others, above average at being interesting in conversation, above average in virtually everything. It's an important part of why our society works. For most of the part of the world, it's actually a better thing that we see ourselves as being winners. It doesn't work in investment management, but it works in a lot of other places. And presumably is part of the argument for why indexing works. Let's go back to what led to the revolution of indexing. I mean, there's obviously your own book on the the losers game in the mid-70s. You have the advent of the first few index funds from Wells Fargo and from Vanguard, various people evangelizing for it at that point. What do you think were the forces that finally brought people around to uh, indexing? One was the existence of indexing so that there is a plain vanilla commodity product at a very low cost that will give you the market rate of return at the market level of risk every day, every month, every year, for as long as you like, and take care of all the mechanics as well for a tiny, tiny fee, five basis points. So there is an alternative. Then you look at active investment management, and the changes there have been simply fabulous, just fabulous. For an example, when I first came into the world of investment management in the mid-60s, there were no CFAs. Now there are 120,000 CFAs and another 200,000 people around the world studying for the exams. There were no Bloomberg machines. Now there are 320,000 Bloomberg machines. You ask yourself, how many people do you have to have to justify owning or renting a Bloomberg machine? If you said three or four... Well, multiply 320,000 by three or four, and you come up with a million people who are involved in active investment management. That's an extraordinary number of people. What have they got going for them? The Internet means they all have access to all the information around the world and instantly at all times. But so does everybody else. And so does everybody else. And there's an enormous amount of information that's disgorged and made available to them through the Internet and other devices. The SEC now requires any publicly listed company that gives any useful information must be provided simultaneously to all investors. Use Twitter if you want to. Use Facebook if you want to. You can use any other kind of device, but you've got to do it. So what used to be the secret sauce of active investment management, private 
thoughtful, probing interviews with senior management, meet with five, six, seven different executives, stay for two or three days. They're very glad to work with you and help you understand their company better. What a comparative advantage you could wind up with if you were really focused on it. So there's been a huge amount of change from what used to be the reason you could do so much better as an active manager. Those things have gradually been either equalized or obliterated or overwhelmed. Now, to what extent is it true? Obviously, people are most interested in U.S. large caps. Those are the big, famous companies. And it's also, by most measures, the most efficient liquid stock market out there. To what extent is this an argument that applies most to the kind of companies you could buy in the S&P 500? To what extent could you also advocate indexing for less efficient markets, high-yield bonds or emerging markets or smaller cap stocks? How broadly does this apply? I would not try to apply it to high-yield bonds, but I've studied the data for various markets around the world geographically. It applies to all of them. And if you apply it and look at large cap, mid cap, small cap, it appears to work roughly equally well in all three categories after you take out the cost of commissions. So there really isn't any particular argument against doing this for smaller companies. This is something that can be applied across the the equity universe. That's certainly the way it appears from the data that you can get access to. And that's, of course, data that has only recently been available because until Spiva came out with their rigorous data where they've said, look, a fairly large fraction of mutual funds disappear from view because they weren't selling because they didn't perform well. What would happen if you added those funds back in? What fraction of the funds that were started or were in business or started five years ago? What fraction of those funds have done better than the market benchmark they're aiming at? And it's usually maybe 20 or 25 percent have done better. means that 80 or 75 percent did less well. Well, it was quite alarming and quite actually quite scandalous, which was was new to me in your in your book. Was the 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 numbers for those mutual funds that are about to close? How badly they do while they're in their death throes, in their last year or two of being wound down, when presumably the manager is that much less motivated and well, so maybe on. so highly motivated that they try hail mary passes and other things that don't happen to work out, and so they do get closed down. There may be some funds that tried a wild risk. But it worked out, so they're able to live on a little bit longer. But it's when you include those that have, that have died that you begin to see how radical the underperformance of active management is. Yeah, I'm afraid it's really dreadful. Now, what is the future? I can summarize two concerns that the people I know in the indexing community would have. One is that it's being made too complicated, that you now have indexes that try to replicate different particular strategies for beating the market, smart beta, as it's, uh, as it's known. Is that doing away with the essential simplicity that people see in the original idea of indexing, as as you were advocating, as Taurus Jack Bogle were? The two great nominal innovations in the history of the world of finance. Mm -hmm. One was the day we changed the name from death insurance to life insurance. Hadn't sold as death insurance, but it sold like hotcakes ever since as life insurance. And the other was the idea of smart beta. There is no data that supports smart beta today that's got anything like robust character to it. But if you go back to when it was first put out and GE was selling at 30-something times earnings and there were a series of large capitalization stocks selling at extraordinarily high prices, 
those stocks did not sustain their values. And there was a period of time in which the so-called smart beta or fundamental indexing did appear to do better. But if you take out that most wonderful period and look at the rest of time, it doesn't appear to be serious, but it catches on. People like the sound of it. And then, as you know, you can create all kinds of different subsets and subsets and subsets and subsets. So there are ETFs of all sorts of very narrow definition. You think weight loss might be a popular thing, you can buy an ETF for that. If you think that (laughs) anything else might be popular, you can buy an ETF for that. Some of them won't make it in terms of asset sufficiency, but they're out there. And I think people trying to be very specific are going to tend to make mistakes more often than they will tend to make great discoveries. So in many ways, you're not too big a fan of smart beta. In many ways, what you're saying is that this was an edifice that was built on somebody correctly seeing an opportunity that was real at the time. Yeah, data mining is a wonderful way to get convincing evidence for those who want to find conviction. Right. And my final question for you is, Thea, you've written a book called The Index Revolution. One very provocative paper from one of the big active managers a few months ago said that indexing ultimately promised something akin to Marxism, that ultimately, (laughs) I'm sure you've read it. I enjoyed it greatly. (laughs) Yes, that ultimately what it implied was that a few people making decisions about the composition of a few indexes were going to decide where all the capital in the economy was to be deployed and all the brilliant minds competing against each other in the red in tooth and claw capitalism weren't going to have any any say in how we allocated our capital it's obviously something that maybe for self-interest a lot of people complain about is there a danger in your mind that uh, indexing could end up blunting the uh, really uh, aggressive edge uh, the schumpeterian edge of capitalism I don't think so, John, but, you know, you can take anything to an extreme and say, well, if it got that far, could it be? Sure. But do I think it's going to get to such an extreme? No. People really do believe that, all of us believe that we can do better by trying harder. And this is going to be hard to persuade everyone to give up on it or even close to everyone to give up on it. We're roughly a third of the assets today are now indexed. If you had two-thirds indexed, which would double the amount that's now indexed, wouldn't make any difference. If you get up to 90%, maybe then you're starting to see some real difference. But when it happens, I just hope somebody will call me up and say, come on down and take a look because it's happening. It's happening. I don't think it's ever going to happen. And basically because hope springs eternal. Yes. And active management, therefore, springs eternal and the argument for indexing. That's what human beings are all about, is trying harder to do better. Thank goodness. Well, I think that's something we can thoroughly agree on. We will all try harder to do better. Charlie, thank you very much. Thanks, Indeed. The Index Revolution, Why Investors Should Join It Now, published by Wiley. And that's the end of today's show. Thanks for listening. Give us a call. We are at 917-551-5012. That's country code plus one for our overseas listeners. You can also email us at alphachat at ft.com. Rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. It does help people find out about Alpha Chat. Finally, you can find John Authors on Twitter at John Authors, and I'm at Cardiff Garcia. This episode was produced and edited by Amy Keene with help from Lauren Leatherby. Thanks again to our listeners. We'll see you on Friday for our regularly scheduled. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Alpha chat.